Asking me to work twice as hard for half the chance is something I'm already capable of doing. I just have to like adopt the fact, the reality, that in order for me to get that shot, in which I know I do deserve, I might actually have to work twice as hard to convince the people who are the decision makers that I'm worthy of the chance. What ended up happening shortly after that incident, it got better or got worse a little bit more before it got better. But after getting put on waivers, I then get the housing letter from Syracuse, which is basically like find an apartment in Syracuse. So now I'm really staying in the minors. Now like they want me. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Part two of our interview with Mark Fraser, uh, former NHL hockey player, current NHL employee, the Toronto Maple Leafs, business owner, inspirational speaker, and friend of Brad Mills. We'll put that in there. So, so Mark, I really liked when we were ending part one talking about just the choices that you made even when you didn't have to and like everybody's going and partying at the cabin at the cottage and you're getting up and and Mm -hmm. working out and you're skipping you're skipping trips to mexico you know and just like the mindset that you brought to it i'm i'm interested in kind of thinking about mental toughness for a minute so what do you remember your first nhl fight there's another question i had asked brad mills Uh, yes, <laughs> definitely do. Was there a follow-up? Because I can get into no. that right away. Nope. <laughs> where, like. what's your, where's your first NHL fight? That was one of the games I mentioned on the previously, on my seven-game call-ups when I was only 20. And obviously playing sort of that physical defenseman style. And so I was, you know, trying to bang bodies and, and hit people and be rough and tough. Hard to play. But unintentionally, through some circumstances that happened in the game, which were a previous a bunch of fights... And one of them was one of our veteran fighters, Mike Rupp, beating up the New York, this with the Devils, beating up the New York Islanders call up Drew Fada. He kind of picked a fight and maybe picked it with the wrong guy and Rupper, let's say, just handled him fairly well. So I think that meant redemption was coming. And then I happened to be the unfortunate young one on the other team, though, who was being uh, the victim to the other team's heavyweight, which was Chris Simon. And for any hockey fans from that from the 90s, early 2000s, they would know Chris Simon as about a, I'm six foot three at the time. I was probably like 210 pounds. I'm about 230 now. But he would have been like 6'6, six, six, 240-ish, like already deemed years prior, like the longtime NHL tough guy, like the NHL tough guy. He's a lefty, which anyone in the knows anything about fighting, like Southpaws are always just trickier. And I remember teasing with my brother before the game on the phone, being like, I'm getting closer to like the fisticuffs. I'm getting closer to throwing it down with somebody. There, we were going through the lineup. Like, who's on the Islanders? You got Aaron Asham. You got this. Maybe I'll fight Chris Simon. And he just laughed like, yeah, I wouldn't do that if I were you. <laughs> and fast forward a few hours. I'm in a situation where I actually think I'm going to fight Aaron Asham. Like, he's on the ground and he kind of slashed me and I turn back around. And I'm like, he already had a fight that game. And I'm thinking, okay, here we go. Like, this is my first one. And then someone grabs me by my back spins me around so that we're like shoulder to shoulder but i'm looking up i'm six foot three and i'm on skates and i'm looking up at this person and i saw who it was and the gloves were already off and i remember just thinking like and i basically just held on for dear life like 
I think he knew exactly what he was doing. Like I said, it was a, <laughs> it was a redem- redemption because Mike Rupp had just fought their rookie and handled himself fairly well. So I think it was a payback. And I think he knew somewhat of my situation. Clearly, he knew I was very green. So he didn't pummel me to a pulp like he probably could have, but more or less strung me out and just... I literally was like swinging for the heavens, like not even able to reach him. He was so far, like I couldn't even hit him. He was too far for me. And I'm a big guy, but I had a smile on my face going back to the penalty box because I survived. And I'll never, <laughs> I remember sitting down and Mike Rupp, I remember Mike Rupp being like, you know, next time, you know, you know, try to do this, try to do that. And I kind of just stopped him. I was like, I know what I'm doing in fights, but like, I'm not going to win that fight. So like, I'm just really happy that I survived. I lived. There's no blood. I'm not cut. There's no black eyes. I protected myself, you know, well enough to like receive the punishment and try to hopeful, like throw a couple blind punches back. But thanks, Rupper, for the advice. But I'm not going into those types of fights anticipating victory. I'm just praying for survival and that's a win. So that was my first one. It was needless to say with like, I mean, this guy had his reputation. He had been suspended for like slashing for for illegal hits for like stepping on the guy. He hadn't even been suspended for racial slurs. So I was like, I was going up against that type of dude. And just grateful, like I, I held my own. But I will remember that after that game, our GM and president and CEO and part-time coach, Lou Lamorello, who's just, you know, micromanager, in case you can't tell by all this, he came up and like rubbed my sweaty head in the locker room afterwards and basically said, good job. And the guy I was replacing from injury came back a day or so later, but the team actually kept me around for a few more days. And I was convinced that the few, like the couple extra days NHL pay that I got was basically a reward to like, this kid could have turtled, he could have cowered, but he hung in there, you know, and he, I did what I had represent. to do for the team and, and and to exactly represent, not back down, do it like for just the 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 squad, you know? And, uh, but needless to say, yeah, my, my, I started with a loss, <laughs> but my career winnings got a lot better. Like <laughs> after that, my career record got a lot better after that, I'd say. You know, it's it was funny. not one I was hoping to have. For all the growing up around hockey and stuff, I, you know, I hadn't really thought about that role as much. And then our charity, Child Rescue, that combats child trap. I got to spend time with a guy who's been really helpful to us. Do you know who Jeremy Yablonski was? Does that name ring a bell at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yabo. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Because, well, he played for the Senators, too. So I know him a little bit from some summer skates. Okay. Saskatchewan boy, right? And um, yeah, just like... crazy, 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 crazy. <laughs> I know. He looks more to me like he should be like throwing shot put or like powerlifting instead of hockey. <laughs> yeah. Or right. like, or fighting in the Coliseum or something. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, um, exactly. I agree. He's just a thick, thick neck, thick everything type of type of dude. Yeah. It was interesting. You know, he was, he's another guy who like downplayed his NHL, downplayed his NHL career and it's like super humble as I was getting to know him. And just talked about like, you know, he knew he wasn't the star of the team, but he was there to protect his guys. And so that nobody thought they could take too much of a cheap shot without retribution and like keeping like basically he thought himself. Mm -hmm. He thought of himself as the guy who keeps his teammates safe, because if you if you do something Uh, too bad to my guys, you're going to have to deal with me kind of thing. And it was a role I had never thought about in hockey. Absolutely. Well, that's why there's so much. I mean, fighting is obviously it's it's a thing that's become lesser now because of certain concerns in my opinion i think hockey itself leads to a bunch of injuries that even neurological injuries just from the sheer architecture of the game the the physicality the hard surfaces everywhere you go the monstrous men colliding against each other 
that contributes more so than actual fisticuffs does to neurological injuries. But premeditated, you know, fist fights, I understand, like, don't need to be part of the game anymore. That would be kind of a guy a little bit more like Yablonski. So the, it still very much exists in hockey, but at least for myself, I always prided myself on I was a good defender. I was a good defenseman. I could actually, you know, play that physical nasty role and stick up when I needed to. But if I needed to stop somebody with my the way I knew how to defend, I could also do that. You know, I'm not the guy to go out there when we're preserving or we're trying to like tie the game or win the game in the last minute. But I'm the guy who's going out there to help preserve the lead in the last minute because I'm going to make sure that my defense speaks for itself. But the way that we would stand up for each other and the way that I could use my physicality and my size and toughness as an asset as well as a tool, it very much was like as the protector. The That's what was seen when I played with the Maple Leafs. And that was a team where we were very tough. We had a number of guys who could throw from Colt to Orr, Fraser McLaren, myself, Mike Brown. And that was in 2012-13. So not all that long ago, but it was kind of one of those last teams in the modern day hockey that was really constructed that way. But the success we had was because we could throw down with anyone at any different weight class and that would create space for the rest of our group so a guy like Nazem Kadri, who might only walk around at like 5'10 can now play with a chip on his shoulder like he's six foot three because no one's going to come after him as long as the rest of us are making this space for him as long as the rest of us are clearing house because no respected tough guy or no you know potential like rad or, or cheap shot or like small guy is going to do anything with the fear of having to answer the bully, so to speak, the old, the bigger brother, I should say. So in a lot of ways, it was policing. I look at it as like, we police the situations. Again, it's, it's the refs aren't going to get everything. And there's this unwritten rule where hockey is allowed, but there's this also grayness where like, you know, the refs might not catch certain like cheap things that could happen. And at the end of the day, all I'm trying to do is obviously is an intimidation factor and a momentum factor, but I'm just really trying to, again, play good defense but protect my brothers. So if you do anything against me or against one of my teammates that's risky or that could potentially harm one of us physically, then you will have to answer to the big brother. And that is a way for us to police the situation and actually kind of keep our opponents more honest than not. And at the same time, yeah, it allows our teammates, our skilled players to have more freedom because no one's going to be bullying them if they know that they're big, if the, you know, if the other team knows the big brothers on the bench and you're gonna have to answer that big brother at some point so that's kind of like what the i know that hockey with the fighting is sort of a weird nuance i obviously no other sports have but that's really is how it worked out and there's so much honor and pride there because really then taking that another layer it's we're willing to you know i i would love playing for captains who they were so tenacious it felt like they'll, they'll run through a wall for you now they're not the guys who are like the toughest or the biggest but they, their their work ethic and their approach to the job is they will run through a wall for any one of our brothers. So that's a really easy person to follow into battle, so to speak. And in the same capacity, I wanted to have that same type of honor and respect for my peers. And how I could do that is if one of them got taken advantage of, that person who took advantage of them had to answer to me. And now that created a bond and a family and, and a chemistry where the brotherhood inside the brotherhood of course, yeah, there's momentum swings because you might get 20,000 people all of a sudden standing up and cheering for you instead of cheering for the other team. But it really was a way for us to show like a love and respect and honor for something. And it had to exist because our sport is too aggressive and physical otherwise, where if there, you take that element out of it, someone could do something crazy like swing a stick violently like a weapon. And sure, that's a penalty and suspendable offense. But we all know that like, 
finding someone five grand or 10 grand when they make millions isn't much, but having someone be publicly embarrassed because their nose got bashed in and it lives on YouTube for the rest of their life or something, that is the type of thing that'll make someone question their behavior. So yeah, in a way it really was, uh, to Yablonski's point, like we, yeah, we, I always looked at it as a way to police the situations on the ice in manners where the rules didn't actually do it. We had to do it ourselves, but it actually kept everyone more honest. And there's that respect when you're done fighting, you kind of see each other, like pat each other on the bomb type of thing. There's like, it's a warrior thing. And there's, as long as it's done within the rules, there's that love and respect and a camaraderie where you and the guy might have a beer after the game or something, despite hours earlier trying to bash each other's face in. It's a weird thing, but it it actually kind of creates almost a beauty in the sport where it's like, can be very angelic and balancing on these two tiny little blades and you're moving at high speeds but there's this, like this warrior mentality integrated, you know, interweaved and, and integrated at the same time. So it's, yeah, it's, it's certainly very interesting. But I, I personally always loved answering the bell and loved playing that role because it was a way for me to show in a way that I don't have the skill to dangle guys and to score that game winning goal. I have the skill to protect us and to keep us safe and, and to allow us to play bigger than we actually might actually be. Honestly, I feel like this conversation could be like, it's almost a carbon copy of like a conversation I had 20 years ago. This guy who I looked up to, Mark Harlow, that was on the Canadian national okay. rugby team. And he talked about that in rugby. It was like the exact same thing. And then they would go drinking afterwards with the, with the people they'd been in their fights with of course. in rugby. And, of course. It, you know, it's just a perspective that if you haven't played at that level, not everybody understands. Exactly. I will say I probably sold a bunch of hockey tickets over the years when I think about tickets in the stands. <laughs> the fights, Absolutely. The fights I mean, there's two things I got fans on. There's two things I got fans out of their seats, scoring a goal and a fight. I mean, it's, it's simple. And I think it'll always need to be part of the game for this year, just like protection of so that those don't who who are against it don't take that, don't take liberties on each other in ways that actually would be much worse than men punching each other because there's a lot of dangerous ways you can get hurt in hockey if, if people do take liberties on one another. Yeah. So I want to go back to what it took to get into the NHL to get into that fight, okay? Can you think about a time when you felt like quitting and what you told yourself not to? Or can you talk about a time when you just did like sheer exhaustion and you you found out that that actually wasn't your limit, you pushed through it? And just what was going through your head at the time to be able to, to, be able to do that? Absolutely. I, I, I never got to a point of like thinking, feeling of quitting. The Like I said, from the time I was maybe four, realistically from the time I was 15, like I believed I could do this. Because I started to separate myself from people my age. So I never would have had a thought of quitting simply just because I felt like my projection would have always still been on an upward trajectory. But one incident I can remember, I referenced the Anaheim Ducks earlier. So after my third year up with New Jersey, I was 25 years old. It was my fifth year or sorry, sixth season with the organization. Myself and another teammate got traded to Anaheim. It was my third year up with the team. Like I said, sixth year in the organization. And I just wasn't playing. It was like right before Christmas and I'd only played four games that season. For whatever reason, I just wasn't in the team's cards anymore. And it wasn't really being communicated to me why or whatever I could necessarily do. So I get traded to Anaheim. And of course, your thought is like the grass is going to be green on the other side. This is a great opportunity to, you know, just get back to where I've been the last couple of years. That didn't happen because of my lack of games to that point in the season. They sent me down to their farm team, which was in Syracuse, New York. And that was more of a way like on a conditioning stint. So that's like a maximum of two weeks. We're just putting you there basically to get like your legs under you. Okay, no problem. I appreciate that. 
then the two weeks ended and I found out from a beat reporter, not even from anyone on the team. So we talk about lack of communication again. And this is where you realize that you're really just a pawn in the business. That's just very disposable. And I found out when we came back from a practice in Syracuse to the rink that the local Syracuse beat reporter is there. And he says, uh, so how do you feel about getting put on waivers? Uh, this was news to me. I had no idea I got put on waivers. But when you're an NHL contracted player down in the minors on conditioning stint, and then you get put on waivers, they're doing that because they're trying to like send you down permanently, but you have to clear waivers. So that was frustrating because I was like, well, two weeks ago, I just got traded to a new team and I was thinking the grass is going to be greener. I haven't played a game with them yet. They send me down and now they're telling me to stay in the minors. Like a month ago, I was an NHL player for the last three years. So that was discouraging. And then waivers comes and goes. And then you're looking at it from the perspective of, well, I have over 100 games in the NHL. And every team just passed on me. Every team has a chance to pick you up off waivers. Now, not every team maybe needed a guy like me, but it's literally that feeling of like, well, everyone's now passed and said, no, we're okay. We don't need him. You can keep him in in the minors. So now I'm really feeling buried. And I remember talking to my dad and being furious and livid because I just didn't understand it. I knew what value I had. I knew what I could bring. And thankfully, I got chances eventually to do so because the best that I had done in the NHL hadn't even come yet. That actually happened a year or two later. But that feeling of just that inadequacy and like why after a proven NHL player for multiple years can't am I getting this type of treatment with no communication? And that was a moment where my dad told me something that he had heard from his grandfather and something that a lot of black or BIPOC people have heard professionally. Women have heard professionally, too. But it was he told me, he said, Mark, sometimes you got to work twice as hard for half the chance. And that really resonated because it was a reminder for me to like, I don't need to complain about the situation I'm finding myself in right now, albeit there is something that you can still control what you can control, right? And that might mean that because I'm different, that there might honestly, looking back at it now, the position I'm in with the Maple Leafs, maybe I'm looking back at it thinking there might've been bias in there. Why me over this player or that player was selected over me? That may come because they were more familiar to whoever was making the decision than I would have been as this black kid from Ottawa. Not to say that was the case or not, but the point is throughout being a minority in hockey, there's enough situations where you have to work twice as hard for half the chance because you're just not as familiar as the rest of your peers to the people who are making decisions. You know, I think Sorry, you're, look at you're going to say yeah, something. Yeah. No, I think about this and I think there there's so many reasons for so many of us to feel inadequate, right? Like in, in entrepreneurship and finance, I think about like, you know, when I was in Calgary running my last fund, I made a lot more money than these businesses that I started since moving to the States. And I'm like, man, was that Mm -hmm. a fluke? Like, am I really not good at this? Like, why, why am I not having the results? What am I not doing? You know? And like, Mm -hmm. you know, like, especially when I realized like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I've chosen the wrong model. I'm basically like glorified self-employed person instead of running a business system that works for me, you know? And, and even though there are businesses I had employees, it wasn't really like when I finally got objective, I was like, Oh, this is a, here's a big reason why, like I need to double down on what works. Like I need to go back to having a fund. That's what, that's how I'm going to get enough money for our Mm -hmm. child rescue. Right. And I faced the same mm-hmm. problems that I did over a decade earlier, where it's like, I, I didn't go to Harvard. I don't have the traditional resume that everybody is looking for. I'm an art school dropout. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And, right. and like right. in entrepreneurship, like it's cool to be a renegade. 
in finance, it's cool to have followed all the rules and taken your turn and climbed the ladder like they told yeah. you to. Okay. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And like, there's so many chances to, like you said, when you know that you know something, right? Like we, we did have an accurate premise on our, on our real estate mandate that we're going after, but because I didn't have those like past mile markers that just made it like buttery easy for somebody to just trust my background and said what I'm saying, like they didn't want to think hard about what I was saying. Mm-hmm. They just wished I had the background that right. looked like I would know. Right. It was yeah, yeah, way harder, like way harder. And like I, I don't know, like I did get to this place of like self-pity of like, why aren't they listening to me? Why won't they take the meeting? Like I, I finally mm-hmm. had a good meeting with this big family office. So it's, it's a guy who runs money for this family. It's worth hundreds of millions. Okay. And we go to have the meeting and like I'm explaining what I'm doing. And I realize this is like a pity meeting. Like he's being nice to me. He's not actually considering what I'm saying. Right. And it's like, right. And he like tried to give me some good advice and it was lame advice. It was like, it was the most discounting advice. <laughs> it was basically like, you can see, I don't think, it. yeah, I don't think that you, you know, I don't think this is really the thing for you. Don't you know, it's hard to run a fund. I was like, yeah, I used to run one for years in Calgary before I came here. Right. Yeah. You know, like, are you sure you shouldn't just be a sales guy for somebody else? And it's like, no, yeah, no, yeah. I shouldn't just be a sales guy for somebody else, you know? You're and, clearly not listening to what I'm believing I'm capable of or yeah. what I'm trying to show you that I'm capable of if, if you're discrediting it. Like, yeah. So what I'm interested in is... I can act- see how that leads to that self-pity too. Well, and here's the other thing. I can make a lot of money. I can give my family a nice, very, very nice income selling somebody else's investment. I just could. Like I, I spent the years learning mm-hmm. that skill set. Like I couldn't do their accounting. I don't, mm-hmm. don't have that skill set. But selling, yeah, I could do that. Right. Yeah. My family could have nice things and stuff, but I'm never going to be able to put the like huge amounts of money into our charity that I want to. That's not, it's not a realistic mm-hmm. vehicle to get there. It's like being a pro badminton player. You're not going to have, you, you've eliminated your chance mm-hmm. of having the kind of salaries that the top NHL pro could have. Right. Right. So yeah. my question for you is this. At those times those, that are potentially defining moments of like, am I going, like, is this going to own me? Is this situation going to own me or am I going to own this situation? Like you said, am I willing mm-hmm. to work twice as hard for half the result? Like, mm-hmm. so I'm interested at that moment when you're feeling the discouragement, when you're feeling the anger, when you're like, you got this mix of emotion at infuriating mm-hmm. unfairness potentially, right? What was it that you yep. told yourself? That you're like, you know what, dad? Okay, I am willing to do twice the work or what what did that look like for you? Um, Yeah. For, for myself, I mean, it was really just like clinging on to those words and understanding. I've spoken a little bit earlier to like some of my family's sort of the the inherent work ethic I perhaps would have developed from my parents or grandparents. And I think it like would have listened to those words and understood what was it my dad was going through when his dad told him that. And largely like this would again like for myself and I'm not I don't know if this is why I was having this struggle at the time or not but because I was a black hockey player in a world where there weren't a lot of us so maybe I didn't wasn't benefiting from someone's bias that might be in my favor opposed to me not actually being the familiar or more easily digested option to make a team despite knowing I should be making a team but so whether it was about race or not I just clued into what my dad's experience was and why he would have had to hear that. And my grandfather, they were all Jamaican immigrants. 
My grandfather came over, went to Queens University in Kingston, went to law school. He's the first black man to graduate from Queens Law. My dad then, as a 23-year-old, was an Olympic athlete, fastest man in Canada for 10 years, what, married what, to my mom. What distance? 100 and 200 meter and four by one. So he was, prior to Ben Johnson, basically handed the torch over throughout the 70s and early 80s, was actually the fastest man in Canada. As 23, at married while going through law school himself. Now, you and I both know Andre DeGrasse or any Olympic athletes right now are also not in law school typically because who the hell has the time? But that's kind of what he was going through then. And and he since has become a provincial court judge. And just knowing like the hurdles that they would have to get through as these men at the eras and times that they lived through. And that one of them said to the father, said to the son, you might have to work twice as hard for half the chance. But then me then hearing that and knowing the result was my dad did it. It kind of like that's where it took me to is, okay, so if Pops did that, if my grandfather probably did that, my other grandfather on my mom's side, he flew Spitfires in the Second World War. So I know there's a lot that that guy would have had to work. He's a squadron leader for multiple different squadrons, very well decorated, DFC bar, flight ace, the whole bit. You know, those types of challenges, if that's where I come from, then asking me to work twice as hard for half the chance is something I'm already capable of doing. I just have to like adopt the fact, the reality in order for me to get that shot, in which I know I do deserve, I might actually have to work twice as hard to convince the people who are the decision makers that I'm worthy of the chance. What ended up happening shortly after that incident, it got better or got worse a little bit more before it got better. But after getting put on waivers, I then get the housing letter from Syracuse, which is basically like find an apartment in Syracuse. So now I'm really staying in the minors. Now like they want me to actually rent a place you can't find a short-term lease, you know? So like they're really have intentions of keeping me here now. And completely unexpectedly about another month after that, I got traded at the trade deadline to the Toronto Maple Leafs. I spent the rest of the year with the Marlies, but my, we were, or we played in the finals in the minors that year at the Toronto Marlies. And the next year I made it to the Maple Leafs and I was back up and I had a career NHL seasons. So, that pivot and when I got to Toronto media people were like what's changed you know what have you learned here that you didn't know that you weren't what didn't have whatever wherever you were prior that's made you this different player and I literally said like nothing's changed I haven't learned anything new I had all this inside of me already I had all this skill set inside of me what's changed is the confidence I'm now surrounded by leadership and people and coaches who are like telling me that they're confident in whatever decisions I make when I go out and play on the ice so that empowerment that is what allowed me to like really power through. It came, started with my own personal like understanding of self-worth and self-awareness because every athlete needs a professional athlete needs to have good self-awareness because all of us can be like, oh man, I deserve this chance. Not that guy. But if we're not realistically looking at it, like then we're just, you know, we may as well be our own mothers, you know, and just my mom would always say, I don't know why they're getting a chance and you're not. I'd be saying, mom, because he's better than me. Stop. You're just saying this because you're my mom, you know, but you're not looking at it realistically. If you could, you would understand why that person got called up and not me. But yeah, it was really just understanding and adapting, like to work twice as hard for half the chance. Well, I just heard this from my father who I know like has been through a ton racially, has been through a ton professionally, has been through a ton athletically, the whole bit. And he's doing all right now because he would have been a judge for the last, you know, 10 plus years or so, or sorry, 20 years of his life at that time. So in order for him to have gotten all the way through that, 
I'm pretty sure at some point he would have had to work double, given the double amount of effort from the next guy to just beat that individual out. But that's also what achieving greatness takes sometimes, right? There's no easy route. Like if it's a saying, it was easy, anyone could do it. So I really just kind of bit down on those words and, 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 and took it as genuinely and as, you know, to the point as, as literally as I could of, I know I'm there because I'm not one of the few guys on this team in Syracuse who actually has played multiple years in the NHL. So obviously I know I can do it, but in order for me to get back there, it's going to take some convincing of the people upstairs and whoever it is I need to convince, whoever it is is watching these game tapes live or in person or whatever, I need to show them that I'm willing to put in double the amount of effort. So whatever that looks like, if that's being more disciplined with my sleep routine and not staying up late on just messing around on watching TV or whatever, if that's, you know, staying, being earlier to practice to get a little bit of like stretching in or like my dynamic warmups or, or just managing my time better, staying late, putting a little bit more effort in, making sure that I have a smile on my face at the rink and days where I actually don't want to have a smile on my face. And all those little things that kind of contribute to like someone seeing and observing and being like, he's a good locker room guy. He's a good leader. He gives it his all on the ice. His athletic ability is there. Um, it was really just understanding that I can control what I can control. I can't control the fact that all teams just passed on me instead of pulling me off of waivers. I can't control that Anaheim's just told me to find a place to live in Syracuse. But what I can control is how I'm going to approach my daily craft. And I decided to do so in giving it not just the actual like physical exertion of effort, but like the mental exertion of that effort too. And never turning off the fact that you're not there, but you've been there and you know what it takes. So continue to fuel that hunger and you will get back there. Through just chance and circumstance, I got traded to the Toronto organization, but I manifested my own path back to the NHL because of that opportunity. So that was like one of the things I could really like relate to, like never a point of wanting to quit, but really being challenged and not understanding like why I'm not getting more benefit of the doubt. But I just decided to be the one to determine my own fate and my own outcome. I love it. Well, I know we're over time, but Maybe just to close here, your dad sounds like such an inspirational guy. Maybe close with one other thing that you feel like you've benefited from or just one other way that you look up to your dad. I would say that's a pretty good question. I, I say like as a well-rounded professional, um, I think this is not just to my dad's credit. I could give both my parents credit for this, but you know, my dad was accomplished. Well, he's Olympian. So he's an accomplished amateur at the time, at least amateur athlete, because they weren't making much money back then. But it's been grown on to be an accomplished professional as well, from becoming a lawyer to then, you know, a provincial court judge. He's well established and he certainly has set the bar high to say the least. But one of the things that there's a good balance though of 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 being charismatic and being a good speaker and communicator and 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 just kind of bringing these different elements to what it takes to kind of have professional success. And not just being like the best student or the best athlete in the room, but actually being a well-rounded version of yourself. I'd say that's one of the qualities that, I, again, like for both my parents, but at least professionally looking at my father is something that I would have inherited and benefited from. And part of that, again, comes from like the mindset of having to maybe work twice as hard for half the chance. So as a black person playing in hockey, maybe I did have to be show ways that I can be easily digestible to my managers or coaches in ways that they would give me more equitable opportunity. Maybe that would honestly mean I would have to show up with a smile on my face in days where I didn't want to, where my counterparts never have to do that because they're never looked at it that way. But it was an approach that I think overall gave me this holistic sort of professional element of, again, like being able to communicate with efficiency, being able to 
showcase on ice or off the ice leadership, you know, being punctual and leading by example, but being relatable, being funny, being loose, very charismatic, the whole bit, because that translates not just really well in a locker room, but it does in what I'm doing now. Working with the Maple Leafs, even though I'm on the corporate side, we're a team. All the different departments that need to collaborate for just one thing to be pushed along is a team dynamic. And with ProPax, it's very much a team dynamic because we're trying to offer an environment and an ecosystem to athletes who maybe have felt like they've lost something to gain that sort of familiarity back and that like fraternity and that camaraderie back with like-minded individuals. So in order to do that, and it's a lot of things we speak on, it's, it's communication, it's employee engagement, it's female empowerment, it's leadership, it's all these various things. But I think that's one of the things that I would have gotten from my father. He's also a huge advocate, you know, for for social justice and for for social issues that that black people face professionally and speaking as well. So these are all things that I think I've inherited that have kind of allowed me to chisel out the path that I'm on now in pairing my interest for sort of social justice causes and my experience as a black hockey player. And now, again, manifesting a job in the NHL that never existed months ago. And I'm the only one who has it. But that's kind of, I think, the benefit of what I've gained from my father and my parents sort of influence on me as being this well-rounded individual so that when I had tough conversations I wanted to have with the Maple Leafs general manager, it wasn't from a position of sitting down and being the angry black man at the table and saying, here's why everyone's racist in hockey. It was from formulating a well-thought-out articulate presentation and articulation of what it is I have to say and meeting them in the middle and realizing that we're both saying the same thing. But let me convince you with like my, how well polished perhaps I am that this is an opportunity that both of us can succeed from and both of us can, can, can grow and actually change the community and the culture of hockey from. So I think those are some of the things I did is, is taking that sort of professional approach, but you kind of need to be, you know, polished and well-rounded in a lot of different ways far beyond just your athletic capability how cool well appreciate all the time you've given us this has been fun and stay in touch man i would love to absolutely thank you again for having me on it's been a pleasure and honestly anytime you'd like to chop it up i'm always down okay this is great bye everyone